Welcome back to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. After a rejuvenating month-long hiatus, we're thrilled to be back, eager to bring you fresh and inspiring content that will stimulate your minds and nurture your souls. In today's episode, we're excited to introduce a captivating new series on Assurance of Salvation featuring Dr. Cornelis Venema. He's going to serve as our guide through an exploration on the grounds of assurance. In this inaugural episode, he'll delve into the very heart of the matter, focusing on the gospel promises that lay the foundation for our confidence in salvation. The topic that I would like to address in this session and the next two sessions is the broad subject of the assurance of salvation. Does such assurance, confidence, and a measure of certainty regarding God's gracious, favorable disposition toward me in Christ belong to the ordinary experience of Christians? Now, just by way of a little background, I'm going to deal in the first this first session with what at the time of the Reformation and in the Reformed Confessions, is generally regarded as the principal or most fundamental basis for a believer having assurance of their salvation, which is the promises that are made and given to us to be known in Scripture of God's grace and mercy toward us in Jesus Christ. Uh, In the second session, we'll be dealing with the second, even though we'll see in the Canons of Dort, for example, written in 1619, in distinction from the Westminster Confession of Faith, written some 30 years thereabouts later. Uh, The same three grounds for assurance are identified, but in a different sequence. And I'm going to be following the sequence that is uh, followed in the Canons of Dort, which is the second ground mentioned is what Paul says about the testimony of the Holy Spirit to our gracious adoption that is born together with our spirits by the Holy Spirit. And then in our third session, we'll deal with what I don't really prefer to regard as a ground or basis foundation for assurance, but I prefer the language of confirmation because it's the good works and fruits that true faith produces as that faith is worked in us by the Spirit with the Word Uh, Even as our Lord says in the Gospels, a good tree is known by the fruit that it bears. It bears good fruit. If a faith, a believing, worked by the Spirit, granted by the Spirit in the Gospel is a genuine faith, it will produce good works. Um, Those good works are not the basis for our salvation, but they confirm the genuineness. They register the reality that our faith is a living faith. So that'll be the third session. But now I want to come to the first ground, but even here I need a little background. And I'd like to begin with a brief comment on history. In many respects, the discovery, rediscovery, if you will, of the doctrine of justification at the time of the Reformation, principally through magisterial reformers like first Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many others, of the doctrine of justification was within a framework in late medieval theology of a general denial that in the ordinary experience and circumstance of believers, there is any real encouragement to cultivate a full assurance of our salvation. 
It was the common teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, and it set forth very clearly in the uh, Council of Trent's response to the Reformation that only some, a relatively small number of believers, are able to enjoy in this life full assurance of their election and salvation. And they enjoy that assurance only as by means of a special communication to them, uh, a word spoken to them exceptionally. Uh, It's referred to in the Reformed Confessions as by a private revelation that goes beyond what is given us to be known in Scripture. Are they able to come to that experience and awareness and confidence of their salvation. So so assurance was generally speaking regarded as a dangerous thing at the time of the Reformation. If you have uh, certitude or confidence regarding your being in God's favor and that you'll be preserved in that favor until the end, until the time of Christ's coming, that gives birth, so the Roman Catholic Church argued, to a kind of carelessness a kind of presumptiveness about your salvation, to put it roughly in the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6. If I'm saved by grace alone and I can have real full assurance of the promises made to me in the gospel for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, then why not sin that grace may abound? I mean, it relates to the question of justification and the role of good works. The Roman Catholic Church was afraid that if you affirmed that we're accepted, justified, righteous, on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone, both his active and passive obedience, and I can receive that righteousness and rest upon it by faith alone, apart from the works faith produces, well, this is a dangerous doctrine. It leads to moral laxity. It leads to easy believism. Why not sin that grace may abound? And so all of that is to say that at the heart of the Reformation's rediscovery of the doctrine of justification, the fruit of that doctrine in the life of the Christian is a joyful and confident apprehension that in spite of all my sins— I have a Savior who, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it in the first question and answer, has fully satisfied for all my sins, and I can have a comfort, whether in life or in death, both in body and in soul, that God will make all things subservient to my salvation, and that the Father who has given me to Christ and as one who belongs to him will not allow anyone to snatch me out of his hand. Now, one further comment before we take up the first ground of such assurance, um, it's it's this. The um, Reformers were never of the opinion that every believer at all times and places, if you read Luther and Calvin carefully, you'll even find that Calvin, though he defines faith as a firm confidence in the gospel promise made to us in Jesus Christ, that all believers are immune from doubt or temptation or do not experience at times in the course of their life as Christians seasons of a lack of assurance. But they did agree that that's an anomaly. That's not as it ought to be. 
and any resolution and coming to a more fulsome assurance of God's grace has to begin with the gospel word that is spoken to us in Christ Jesus. Now, having said all of that, let's look together at what I've called already in the confessions based on Scripture, the primary, foremost, most basic ground for the believer's assurance of salvation. In the fifth main point of dialogue, I'll read two quotes from the confessions first and then take up some of the evidence from Scripture. Uh, In the fifth main point of doctrine at the Senate of Dort, the the doctrine is the perseverance of the saints. Uh, It's in this context that the canons address the issue of assurance most fulsomely. And that's not accidental because the canons were written over against the position of the Remonstrants or the Arminian party, and they affirmed a kind of assurance, but the assurance they affirmed was only for a season. If you should fall away and lose that faith that you once possessed, don't continue or persevere or be preserved in faith. The assurance you had yesterday is not yours today or certainly as it relates to you. You can have, they very explicitly refuted the idea that, and this is what full assurance is. It's not the assurance that I may may be saved today, but I could be lost tomorrow. Full assurance is confidence in God's favor that he who begins a good work or began a good work in me will bring it to completion. Uh, Temporary assurance in many respects is, by that standard, uh, something of an oxymoron. So that's the reason this, this topic comes up of assurance within the framework of the canon's affirmation over against the Arminians that those whom the Spirit through the Word draws into fellowship with the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, they will not fall away irrevocably because God in his persistent faithfulness, steadfast love, will not let loose his grip upon those whom he's given to Christ and who've come to Christ by the working of the Spirit. The Spirit uh, abides with us, says our Lord in the Gospel of John, John 14, forever. So it's in Article 9 that we read the following, the assurance of this preservation, concerning this preservation of those chosen to salvation, and concerning the perseverance of true believers in faith, believers can and do become assured in accordance with the measure of their faith, by which they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church, and that they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it's immediately in that context of having defined assurance that belongs to true faith that you have an article on the ground of this assurance. And it reads as follows. Accordingly, this assurance does not derive from some private revelation beyond or outside the word. That's an illusion oblique reference to Roman Catholic teaching, but it derives from faith in the promises of God, which he has very plentifully revealed in his word for our comfort. That's the ground that I'm interested in 
in the remainder of our time. It goes on to say, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testifying with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs. And lastly, and finally, from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. Now, you find a very similar statement in the um, Westminster Confession of Faith. It states very distinctly in chapter 18 of Assurance of Grace and Salvation, Article 2, this certainty or assurance is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The inward evidences, evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made. Notice the Westminster Confession lists the third ground, the good works that faith produces that confirm the genuineness of faith, as a second, unlike the canons where it's listed thirdly and finally. Uh, If I may say so, I prefer the sequence in the canons to that in the Westminster, but I don't mean to make too much of it because they do then add, the Westminster Confession adds, and the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirit, spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. Now I have to come to the main point here, and that is the principal ground basis and foundation for the assurance of salvation that believers are given and may have by God's grace is the sure and certain promises of God's mercy, his abounding grace, the promise of the forgiveness of sins uh, that are ours in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that the West, that the canons use the language, these promises of God's grace toward us in Christ are plentifully found throughout the scriptures, which is a way of saying we don't have time in this session to uh, adduce all of the occasions for that sort of liberally sprinkled throughout all scripture, testifying to God's grace and mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. I'll give, by way of illustration, a few examples from Scripture, one of which is uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 11 and 12. These are only intended to be illustrative. 2 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. Let's get 1 and 2 Corinthians 1 and 2 distinguished. We read in 1 Corinthians 2 at verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. If I might summarize, you might think, well, this gets us into the second ground, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. But the the main point Paul is making in 
1 Corinthians 2 is when the word concerning Christ is preached and that word is heard by and through the working of the Spirit who opens our eyes to see the glory of God and of Christ in the gospel, to receive and embrace the promise that comes to us in the gospel, uh, we have a certitude that God has made known to us, opened his heart to us, and when he makes promises to us in Christ, those promises are altogether true. They're apprehended and received by faith, by that spiritual discernment that belongs to faith as we are granted faith by the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that in another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul says to us and to the Corinthian church that all the promises that God has made in the gospel, in Christ, are yes, to which we respond with our amen. Those promises, of course, include reconciliation with God, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, the assurance that our sins are forgiven. While we're talking about passages, we all know the well-known assurance of God's favor and grace in Romans 8. Now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has done for us in Christ through his sacrifice on our behalf, Paul says in the opening verses of Romans, all that is needed to assure us that we are no longer under condemnation. Then you get at the end of Romans 8, that amazing uh, oration, some call it a peroration of the apostle, uh, nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? If God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, sealing his love for us in the precious blood that Christ shed on our behalf by way of his sacrifice upon the cross, uh, that is, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? One of my favorite texts in this connection, if I leave the epistles of Paul and go to the book of Hebrews, which in many ways is a brief on the solid foundation that is ours in the work of our faithful and merciful high priest to assure us that his blood is sufficient to sanctify us, to perfect us, and make us presentable to God. A couple of passages in Hebrews that I go to in this connection are Hebrews 7, verse 25, where he says, Consequently, the author of Hebrews says, regarding Christ's work on our behalf, he is able to save to the uttermost. And the word uttermost there could be translated not only in every way, in the depth of our need, Christ has met that need, but to the end. That is, he is able to save us not only for a season, but to preserve us in that salvation that is ours in him. He saves to the uttermost those, says the author of Hebrews, who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in perhaps the most uh, decisive summary of the book of Hebrews, 
in Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 19, you talk about an explicit use of the language of assurance in connection with the promise of the gospel in Christ. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's alluding there to the typology of the Old Testament temple and the entrance of the high priest but once per year on the Day of Atonement behind the curtain into the very presence, the place symbolizing God's presence. Now he's talking about the heavenly sanctuary in respect to which that Old Testament temple was but a copy. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, this is an amazing statement to any Old Testament believer knowing the Old Testament scriptures, We have confidence to enter into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the heavenly sanctuary, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, this is a remarkable, even more remarkable exhortation. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I've only touched the surface, but I hope these passages are illustrative. When we look to Jesus Christ and the promises made to us regarding his saving work and the summons to embrace those promises in the way of faith. When the Spirit grants such faith, we come knowing, believing, with full assurance, confident that Christ has done all that is needed to grant favor with God himself, righteousness, and the assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins. He has fully satisfied for them And as a merciful and faithful high priest, he, in the gospel, summons us to come with that kind of assurance, with that kind of confidence, not in ourselves, and not in anything that we have done or ever will do, but in all that he has done for us. That is always and forever the foremost foundation and basis for any assurance that believers may have of their acceptance and uh, communion with God through Christ. Next time, Dr. Venema speaks on the second ground for assurance of salvation as found in the Canons of Dort, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts. And wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.